Well, good morning, Whitecliff Church. Um, whether you are joining us in the building um, there or you're joining us online, I'm glad you're here today. I wish I was with you. Uh, still under quarantine here in the Parsonage, but um, yeah, we'll get through this. As Pastor Ben uh, mentioned this morning, the service will be a little bit different uh, because of the toggling back and forth between um, Zoom meetings and stuff is better just to kind of have him do his portion and then me do my portion. So um, it will be a little bit different. Right up front, too, I want to apologize um, for not getting out information about to those of you who are meeting at church. Um, Scott Edwards did a lot of hard work and research and came up with a great plan. Uh, Rebecca Brown does a great job of getting you information out. I just dropped the ball and everything I'm doing, I forgot. So that's my fault. I apologize. Uh, but as with my portion of the service this morning, when we look at the New Testament and things that the church generally did when they gathered together, there were singing, which we've already done to encourage one another in our faith um, to praise God. But also there's scripture reading, prayer and the preaching word. So as we prepare our hearts uh, to receive uh, the message this morning, what I would like to do is read a psalm. Um, and then pray for our church, for different things in our church um, as we get started. So I'm going to start Psalm 1 and just read it and then go into a time of prayer. And then from there, we will get to the sermon. Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season. And its leaf does not wither. And all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but they are like shaft driven, like shaft that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Can you pray with me? Well, God, you are good. God, your law is good. God, your word is good. May we meditate on it. May we plant ourselves in it like a tree that's planted by water. And Father, as we gather today, I ask for wisdom for state and church leaders as they navigate how to best reopen as our state reopens. God, give them wisdom and discernment there. God, I pray likewise that you give wisdom and discernment to small group leaders within our congregation as they seek to connect um, with people within the church um, safely or in a way that is not frightening. God, I pray that you would give them wisdom on how to best do that that fellowship would be had within our church body. Father, we lift up our sister Johanna to you today. We ask, we praise you that her surgery has gone well, that she is regaining strength. We pray for continued strength. We pray for encouragement for her as she convalesces there uh, with family in Oregon, God. We pray that even though we are apart from her, that we are afar, that we could minister to her in the same way that she has faithfully ministered to all of us here at White Cliff Church. Father, I also lift up Vicki's daughter, Christy, to you um, as she's expecting soon. We ask that you give the medical team there in Seattle wisdom um, and for a smooth 
smooth labor. We also lift up our sister Megan to you as she progresses in her pregnancy. We pray that you would grant her rest and encouragement. And we pray for her husband, Nick, as he seeks to minister to her during this time. We also ask uh, for future travel plans to fall into place for their family, that there would be a smooth transition as they look to move. Father, I ask for encouragement for Brother Tom as he finishes up his time in quarantine. Um, after his medical procedures, God, we pray that he would be encouraged um, by the body and that there would be some sort of fellowship there as well while he finishes his time. Father, I want to thank you for bringing Pastor Sid to Ketchikan. God, thank you for the wisdom and love that he has given the church in the past year. I thank you for the wisdom that he has given me um, as we looked at transitioning here. God, I ask for a joyful reunion with his friends and family uh, while he quarantines himself there. And God, I ask that you would grant him encouragement um, of the encouragement from his faithful labor here in Ketchikan um, and that he would know that he has many people here that love him dearly and miss him. Father, I ask for safety for Randy Covington and other Baptist Resource Network personnel as they will be traveling through Canada this week uh, with equipment for our state convention. God, I pray that it would be an uneventful trip and that they would be safe. Father, we lift up those this Memorial Day weekend that have lost loved ones um, in service to our country. God, we pray that they would just know that their loved one's sacrifice, their sacrifice um, is not lost upon us, that we are grateful, that we are a grateful nation, um, that their loved ones not only were willing to stand outside the camp for our protection, but ultimately paid um, for our freedom with their lives, God. Be with their families. Father, we pray that you would draw people to yourself uh, as Dennis prayed this morning here in our community, God, that people would be saved, that people would come to know you um, and that we would be salt and light. Finally, Father, I pray that as we move into a time of the preached word, that you would illuminate it to us, um, that you would use me to preach Christ and him crucified. And if there's anything unneeded or unprofitable in my speech, that it would fall away from the church's ears, God, that only your truth from your perfect word would remain in their hearts. And it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. <clears throat> Meanwhile, this is the course that I have adopted in the case of those brought before me as Christians. I ask them if they're Christians. If they admit it, I repeat the question a second and a third time, threatening capital punishment. If they persist, I sentence them to death. For I do not doubt that whatever kind of crime it may be to which they have confessed, their stubbornness and inflexibleness should certainly be punished. This, these words are from a document in a letter from a man named Pliny the Younger in 113 AD. And Pliny was a magistrate in the Roman government under the Emperor Trajan, who he's writing to there. And he's talking about how he handled Christians in his community. Persecution has always existed at some level in the church, maybe not in our country in a way like this, but at some level, there is persecuted church around the world now. 
But in this time, Christians were often misunderstood. Uh, they were called atheists, which is funny to us who have never read that because we're not atheists. We believe in the one true and living God. But to them, because we did not have a visible God, because Christians didn't have a little statue or something, um, we didn't have a visible God. So we didn't believe in God. And we were atheists, as they would call us. They also thought us Christians as cannibals uh, because we would partake in some sort of weird feast uh, where we would eat uh, the body of someone and drink his blood. And so they misunderstood us. Around the same time, actually about 40 years after the quote in the letter I just read you was written, um, those same policies from Emperor Trajan were still in effect. And there was a man named Polycarp. Now, some of you may be familiar with Polycarp. He's one of the early church martyrs. Um, but we're going to talk a little bit about him because it applies to the context in which our letter was written. So Polycarp was the Bishop of Smyrna um, around the Mediterranean. And during his life in his area of Smyrna, um, Christians weren't necessarily sought out. But if they were found out, if they found out they were Christians, they were required to worship the pagan gods. And if they didn't, they were usually killed. And so there's an instance where a bunch of Christians were brought to the authorities and they refused to worship the God. And under cruel tortures, they still remained firm. And they, they didn't give in. They didn't compromise. They did what they knew was right. And there was an older Christian there and they asked him, you know, consider how old you are, what you're doing. Just lay a pinch of incense on the altar to the emperor and everything will be OK. And he refused. In fact, he said um, that he did not want to live in a world uh, where such injustice existed. So bring on the beast. During this time, Christians would often be fed to wild animals in the arena. And it so enraged all the people, the mob, that they said, death to the atheist, bring out Polycarp. And so they went in search for this man, Polycarp, the Bishop of Smyrna. Well, at first his, his friends urged him, hey, just get away, run, whatever. And so he did, he hid in different places, but they kept finding him and he kept having to be on the run. And eventually he decided, you know, that maybe this is God's will. So I'm just gonna go to court and I'm gonna defend my Lord. And so we actually have a record of what happened between him and the judge. And so he's standing before the judge and the judge tells him to worship the emperor and Polycarp refuses. And he says, consider your age and Polycarp refuses. And the guy said, just say out with the atheist and it'll be okay. And Polycarp said, yes, out with the atheist and pointed to the crowd that wanted to kill him. The judge insisted that if he just swore to the emperor, he would go free, just deny Christ and swore to the emperor. And this is his reply. For 86 years, I have served him and he has done me no evil. How could I curse my king who has saved me? And the dialogue went back and forth. The judge threatened him with being burned alive. And Polycarp answered that the judge could light a fire that would last only for a little while. Whereas the eternal fires of hell would never go out. Finally, we are told that he was tied to a post and burnt alive. Before he was burnt, he said these words, Lord, sovereign God, I want to thank you that you have deemed me worthy of this moment so that jointly with your martyrs, I have a share in the cup of Christ. For this, I bless and glorify you. Amen. As I said, oftentimes in the Christian walk, the, the church has been persecuted. Sometimes we get the idea in America that if you become a Christian, your life will be easy, that everything will be just a glide walk, that um, you will be super prosperous. But what we see in both the New Testament and the last 2,000 years of church history is something different. 
Paul tells us, all who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. The Apostle John writes, do not be surprised when the world hates you. And Christ himself said, if the world hates you, understand that it has hated me first. In church history, there was a preacher uh, in Czechoslovakia. It wasn't called that then, but now lived in Prague, who was persecuted and burned alive by the Roman church at the time for having the audacity to say that man is saved by faith alone and not by his own works. Martin Luther, John Knox, Hugh Latimer, George Wishart, several of the reformers were persecuted and some of them were also burned at the stake. In the 1600s, 1652, a date called the Great Ejection, uh, Puritan ministers were ejected from the Church of England and they were ejected because they wanted to use the Bible alone as their guide in worship and not certain traditions and things of that nature. So they were actually kicked out of their churches and kicked out away from their congregations that they loved. And in 1651, even here in America, Obadiah Holmes was whipped on the Boston Commons publicly for having Baptist views. The Apostle Paul, circling back to scripture, following the pattern of our Lord, was persecuted. He was whipped. He was beaten. He was stoned. So why do I bring all this up? Because persecution is going to be a major theme in the book of the Bible that we're about to launch out in uh, a study for the next several weeks. In fact, the human author, uh, Peter, was persecuted, and he's actually one of the martyrs we mentioned. Think about 11 of the 12 disciples were all martyred for the faith, Jesus's followers. So this morning, the questions I kind of want you to think about as we look at the text are these. Are you willing to be alienated from society in order to be obedient to Christ? Are you possibly just fearful in general? Uh, I mean, it's a crazy year. It's a, election years, lots of things going on. We have COVID-19 all around. There's even murder hornets and Australia's on fire or was on fire earlier in the year. So are you fearful in general? Or are you just on edge? Uh, maybe we, you think we could use politics or, or some sort of other um, format to force Christian morals onto our society. Or do you just even think about who you are in Christ as a follower of Jesus? <coughs> so today, we are going to see the privilege, <coughs> excuse me, today we are going to see the privilege and supremacy of the Christian life from the book of 1 Peter, a series that I am going to call the marrow of the Christian faith. I get that title from Martin Luther, who said, who thought very highly of 1 Peter. He said, it's one of the books that if you only had this book, um, you could understand a lot of the Christian faith. Not everything. We need the whole counsel of God. Let that be said. But in this book, we will find the marrow of the Christian faith. Peter is writing to persecuted Christians scattered throughout Asia Minor, which is modern day Turkey. And the apostle writes, encouraging the church or the body of believers. He's encouraging them to remember who they are in Christ. It's a circular letter. So while many of Paul's letters are written to a specific church or a specific, specific person, um, this one would have meant to circulate throughout Turkey. And some of the themes we're going to see are how Christians should live in a larger unbelieving society, uh, not to be surprised when we're attacked, when we're persecuted, when we don't fit in. Um, we're going to see both suffering and salvation, submission to the government. Uh, we're going to see marriage. 
even, and what it means to be a faithful shepherd of the church, pastors. So if you're not there already, would you turn with me in your Bible to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, and we're going to go through verses 1 through 9. <clears throat> First Peter 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, <coughs> Belanthia, excuse me, Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for the sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. <clears throat> in this text, <coughs> excuse me, in this text, we find three concrete reminders of our salvation. First, Christ's church are pilgrims who were called to salvation. Second, Christ's church has an imperishable inheritance. Third, Christ's church will rejoice during times of trial. Again, in this text, we have three concrete reminders of our salvation in Christ. Christ's church are pilgrims who were called to salvation. Christ's church has an imperishable inheritance. And Christ's church will rejoice during times of trial. First, Christ's church are pilgrims who were called to salvation. Now, this letter does not slowly build, but it explodes with rich theology right from the beginning, right? So this is not like a symphony letter that kind of starts off <clears throat> quiet and then builds and builds and builds to a climax. You should think about this as like Mighty Mo, the old battleship, firing all of its cannons at once. We have like just a broadside of theology in these first verses. Look with me um, at, the, at the chapter. First, the apostle, first Peter, an apostle. This letter is not good advice. This is not a, you know, this is what you should do book. No, this book carries binding apostolic authority for the church. And as we talked about last week, it is God breathed by the divine author. So the church needs to listen to this. It has authority. Looking at verses one through two, we see the Trinity. This is a Trinitarian um, passage. Look with me at verse two. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, 
for obedience to Jesus Christ, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God in three persons. This is a Trinitarian uh, passage. We sang about the Trinity this morning uh, in one of the songs that Pastor Ben led us in. So these is writ- this book is written to elect exiles or chosen pilgrims, saved according to the foreknowledge of God, set apart by the Spirit, and cleansed by the Son. Chosen Pilgrims, Tom Schreiner, who is a professor at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, writes, Peter indicates from the outset that the Church of Jesus Christ is the Israel of Christ, his chosen people. They are pilgrims because they suffer for a faith that the world does not like. They find it distasteful. They find it off-putting. They are aliens, strangers, but they belong to the creator of the universe. They belong to God. So Christian You have status with God, but it's not because of anything you've done, any kind of work or anything that you have accomplished. Your status is bestowed on you by a holy and a loving father. Look back at verse two with me. According to the foreknowledge of God. Now, foreknowledge is a covenantal term. So in the Old Testament, when they talk about God knowing, um, it is a sort of like favor and affection. We see this in the Old Testament when he tells the nation of Israel, Only you of all the nations have I known. What he's saying is only you of all the nations have I loved, have my favor. He's not that there are certain families or nations on the earth that God doesn't know about as if it were just a sort of head knowledge. But it is only Israel has his favor. Only Israel had his love of an affection. And Christian, if you believe in Christ, you are who God has foreknown, who has his favor. Second, um, look back at verse two, the sanctification of the spirit. Now, most of the time when we think about sanctification in the church, we think about progressive sanctification. We think about our killing sin in our life and how the Holy Spirit works in us, making us holy, which is true. That is sanctification. But sanctification is also twofold. Here we are talking about um, the sanctification of the spirit or the making holy, the setting apart that you have if you are a Christian. So in one sense, you are being made holy, but you have also been made holy. You are made holy, set apart in your conversion by the Holy Spirit. He opened your eyes um, to see your need of the gospel. He brought you to faith. Um, in Ephesians 1, we, we see that the spirit, the spirit seals us. And in, a, in our context, we can often think about sealing and like sealing a Ziploc bag or, I don't know, maybe even uh, sealing a letter with like the wax signet ring or something. Um, but in the first century, the sealing is more like that of branding cattle or branding a slave. Um, we are sealed by the spirit. We are set apart. Um, the fact that we have the indwelling spirit that does not leave is a sign that we are in Christ. We are sealed we are set apart. We are made holy by the Spirit. So Christian, you have been sanctified and you are being sanctified. And it is all the work of the Spirit. The third uh, here we see is Christ looking back at chapter two or verse two, excuse me, for obedience to Jesus Christ and by the sprinkling and for sprinkling with his blood. Now in the Old Testament, a couple of things that sprinkling would mean Um, One was cleansing lepers. If someone was a leper and they were made cleansed, they might be sprinkled, but also the inauguration of a covenant. 
And both of those themes are actually seen here in this text. So we are cleansed of our sin by the blood of Christ. Through his sacrifice on the cross, we are made clean. But we also enter into the new covenant by obeying the gospel through the sprinkling of the blood of Christ through his cleansing sacrifice. Um, Hebrews, well, in the book of Hebrews, we talk about we can come boldly before the Father through the blood of Christ, through the sprinkling of his blood. Atonement in the Old Testament would have been an animal victim who is taking the uh, sin of the person and paying that cost. And Christ did that for us. If you're a Christian, in the great exchange is where Christ took your sin upon himself on the cross and he fully paid the debt. He drank the righteous cup of wrath that the father had for you and gave Jesus gave you his righteousness, the great exchange. He takes your sin and you take his righteousness through the sprinkling of his blood. You are made clean. So here we see the Trinitarian work right out from the very bat, from the very beginning of first Peter of God foreknowing of the father, the sanctifying work of the spirit, the atoning work of the, of the son for our obedience. We are foreknown, we are set apart, we are cleansed, and we are obedient. Look with me at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. A merciful Father has caused us to be born again. We praise God that our salvation and our future are certain. Like we don't have to worry about it, even though sometimes we do. We don't have to worry about it because it's certain, because God has brought it about. He is the driving force, and it's not anything that we have done. It's not our effort. It's not because we checked certain boxes along the way um, that we are made holy, but it is only through the work of a perfect and living God. Look with me at the end of verse three. It says, a living hope through the resurrection. <clears throat> Let that sink in. We have a living hope through the resurrection, not a dead hope grounded in myths and superstition, but a living hope, an active hope because of the resurrection of Jesus. The Christian's hope is grounded in the fact that there's not a tomb over in Palestine somewhere that has the body of our Lord, but he is resurrected. He is rose from the dead. Their hope, the church, is grounded in the fact that Jesus is alive. Turn with me real quick. You can stick a finger in 1 Peter. Turn with me over to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15. Got to get there myself. All right, 1 Corinthians 15. We are going to start in verse 3. Paul's writing to the church at Corinth. <clears throat> For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, or Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. What we see here is what 
some believe to be one of the most ancient creeds of the Christian faith. And it's four parts. Paul is saying Christ died in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried or he was placed in a tomb. Third, that tomb was found empty. And fourth, he appeared to like over 500 guys and they're still alive. Some have died, but a lot of them are around. You can go talk to them. You can go ask them about this. <clears throat> There's a logical flow. Now, while our faith is not based merely upon logic, but upon faith that is granted to us, there is a logical flow here. And if you want to deny the resurrection by this, these four points, really, you have to deny the first one. Because the fact is, history says that Jesus was a historical figure who was crucified. And he was buried. He was placed in a tomb with Roman soldiers around it. And then that tomb was found empty. And then over 500 people say, yeah, we saw him. And so while I said our faith is not based merely upon logic, there, it's also comforting to know there's a logical flow to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has risen. Hear me. He is alive. He has defeated death. And those of us in Christ have a living hope grounded on the fact that Jesus Christ is alive. We have an imperishable inheritance, which brings me to our second point. The first point being that um, Christians are chosen pilgrims. The second being Christ's church has an imperishable inheritance. Look with me <clears throat> in verses four through five. Back in first Peter chapter one. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, being kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be received in the last time. <clears throat> Christ's church has an imperishable inheritance. In the, in, in the Old Testament, inheritance was often land, right? Like it was the promised land, had to do with an actual physical piece of property. But in the New Testament, our inheritance is no longer a piece of property <coughs> with definite borders. But is the end time hope that awaits all believers. Now, there still will be a new heavens and a new earth. Hear me there um, in the end times. <coughs> but ultimately, our hope and our inheritance is not centered around Palestine. The believers will inherit eternal life. In the strongest possible terms, Peter stresses that Christians have this inheritance. Now, if you think about our society, think about a guy named Karl Marx. Karl Marx is quoted to say that religion is the opiate of oppressed people. Society will say we have just been fed fairy tales to keep us quiet. And what we really need is to break free from all of these things, revolution, uh, and we need to grab some of this good stuff around us right now. That's what we need to be doing. And we see that all over, um, that kind of mentality. <clears throat> but in Peter's time, Christians were actively being fed to wild animals. Nero would cover them in wax and use them as candles for his dinner parties. Even the writer of this letter, the human um, author, had been would be crucified. And despite that, despite this fact, despite the fact that he was persecuted, he never, never abandoned the faith. Many martyrs went to their, went to the, their graves, never abandoning the faith. Marx offers you nothing. He offers you revolution. 
with a small hope that you might get a little bit of good stuff here on earth. But Christianity offers you right standing with God in eternity, never ending, eternity with him. And this inheritance is being guarded by God's power through faith. So often we like to think of salvation as only something that happened in the past, right? Like there was this one day, and that's the day I came to faith. And while it is true, salvation is in our path, salvation is also now, and salvation is also future. There's a coming of future salvation. The New Testament speaks of us being saved from God's righteous judgment on the last day. Now, the last day, if you read that in scripture, often equals God's judgment. So not only if you're a Christian, have you been saved? You are now saved and you will be saved on the last day from God's judgment. Those who by God's power are being guarded by faith, those who endure to the end will be saved. Now, there's a certain view somehow that is seeped into a lot of our churches. um, And I pray you don't hold it, but it's what I call the incantation view of salvation. And it's this idea that if you say some magical, mystical words at one point in your life, you and poof, you are like incantated, and then you have your fire insurance. And no matter what you do, so someone says some magical words when they're 14 and then goes to South America and runs a drug cartel um, until they're 85 and murders and wipes out you know, indigenous pos- personnel, because there was a time they prayed some magical words, well, they have their fire insurance. They're actually Christians, even though their life looks nothing like a Christian. Like John says, if you walk in darkness and not the light, the light is not in you. Instead, in contrast to that, I believe in the old Protestant doctrine, one that is the perseverance of the saints, in that those who are truly saved, those who are really trusting Christ, that really genuinely trust Christ will endure to the end. There may be fallings, let that be said, We all will struggle with sin. We all will struggle as long as we're in this flesh with um, sinful natures. But the true Christian, the highlight reel of their life will be one of faithfulness. It'll be the obedience that we just talked about a few verses ago. Obedient Christian life. They will endure to the end. Tom Schreiner again writes, There is no final salvation apart from continued faith in Christ. Trusting in Christ for salvation and still trusting in Christ for salvation. Just as you are sanctified and being sanctified, you were saved, you are saved, and you will be saved if you are truly trusting in Christ. And we have nothing to brag about. We have nothing to boast about. We have nothing to say, you know, I did this or I endured. Because here we see it is God's power that protects us. It is God's power that is sustaining us. So Christian, you should be encouraged, as I certainly am, um, as a fallible human being, that we are kept by God's power, and it is not up to our own strength. Third, we see that Christ's church will rejoice during times of trial. Thinking of endurance, we see that we will rejoice during times of trial. Now, these last verses speak of how we should praise God because of the hope that we have. Now Peter shifts to the joy that fills the church, even in the midst of suffering. Look with me back at verses six through nine in the text. In this, you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, 
so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Though you have suffered grief, you rejoice. Why? Because the Christian knows that what we're going through isn't going to last forever. It is just for a little while in light of eternity. It may seem like forever now, but it's just for a little while. It's not that we as Christians enjoy pain. We don't enjoy pain any more than anybody else, but it's because we have a hope. I was trying to think of a good illustration with this. And the best thing I could think of is well, right after high school, I worked on a lumber yard. Um, and so I would just all day in the sweltering Georgia heat, sometimes 12 hours in the summer, because that's when you build buildings, I would load two by fours onto, you know, trucks and doors and windows. I was the young kid. So I got all the, the junky assignments. And lots of times it it stunk. It wasn't fun. But when you knew it was going on vacation, if I was going to the beach that Saturday or Friday or whatever, those days leading up to it, you had a little extra pep in your step. Even though the job stunk just as much, you knew there was a future in which it wasn't going to stink. And maybe Bob beside me, he didn't have that vacation. And so he didn't have that pep in his step. And he wasn't as excited as I might have been. And now every illustration breaks down. But the idea is that Christians, this, this, temp, this uh, grief that we're going through now is temporary. And we have eternity with Christ. And those around us that don't know him, our hearts are broken for them. And we share the gospel with them. And we desire that they will come to faith in Christ. But we have something to look forward to that they don't. And so it's not proper for us oftentimes to act as they do if that makes sense. Vacation is only a few weeks, and how much more is eternity with God? In light of eternity, our trials are light, and God's plan is being accomplished, even in the midst of our trials. We must remember that. And so why is it God's plan that we suffer? Well, verse 7 says, suffering in some sense shows whether or not we are truly saved. Do you really have faith in Christ? As a former soldier, I immediately think it's easy to be a soldier on a spring parade day when you're in your dress uniform and you're marching along and things are great. And you know, there's going to be a barbecue later that day. It's much harder to be a soldier when it's wintertime and you're cold and you're hungry. Think about the guys at Valley Forge that didn't have shoes this Memorial Day weekend. Many of them had to wrap their feet in cloths. They weren't even getting paid. It's much whole. You find out who the true soldiers are during those times, not during the parade times when everyone's saying thank you for your service. And in the same way, we see that these sufferings show who truly trusts in Christ. Likewise, Peter here says the Christian will be tested, tested with fire in the same way gold is tested in a furnace. It's also the same way that gold is refined. Looking back at verse seven, Peter tells us even gold perishes, but the faith In the life that Christians have inherited, it is imperishable. And we rejoice in this. The transformation God works in the life of believers, our imperishable inheritance, 
and the testing of our faith. Look with me, eight and nine. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Now, Peter had seen and walked with Christ. He'd walked with Jesus. But his audience, the churches there in Turkey in Asia Minor, had not. And yet they believed in him. In John 20, 29, Jesus tells Thomas, You believe because you have seen me. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Believers, we have never seen Jesus. We do not see him now, but we will. We will see Christ on the last day. And all of the suffering, all the things we've gone through will seem like nothing. I don't know. I've been present for all three of my children being born so far by, so far, by God's grace. And this last one, uh, JB came before the epidural kicked in. So um, that was, I was present for that. And I saw the pain that Sarah went through as a mother. But you know what? When she held that healthy baby in her arms, she wasn't thinking about that. She wasn't talking about that. In a small way, actually in a bigger way, how much more is our, the day we will see Christ, the day that we go into that imperishable inheritance. All of the trials of this life will seem like nothing compared to the eternity we will start with God. Until then, we go on believing through the faith granted to us and rejoice in suffering. We don't, it's not that we will do it perfectly. I, of all people, need to hear this sermon. Um, You know, sometimes we get punched in the mouth and it's okay to reel back from that initial punch. But when we come back, we're not shattered. We're not floored. We're not without, we're not in despair without hope. But we know who we trust in. Schreiner writes again, souls refer, souls here refer to the whole person, not just the immaterial person. We should not think that the body is left out in these verses. There will be a physical resurrection as well. So in the last days, in the resurrection, we will physically be in heaven, whatever that looks like. It's not just a soul, like our body will be resurrected as well, just as Christ now is seated at the right hand of the Father in bodily form. Through this, we do not see. And though we suffer here on earth as true believers, we do not fall away, but look to him with concrete help. For time's sake, I won't read it, but a good parallel passage that I almost read is Romans 8, especially 28 through 39. It picks up these same three themes that we're talking about here. So I would encourage you this afternoon, if you have some time, some quiet time, read through Romans chapter eight, and you will see much of what we talked about here this morning. We are pilgrims called to salvation with an imperishable inheritance, and we rejoice in trials. But of course, if you're not trusting in Christ, none of this means anything to you. If you've never trusted Christ with your life, then you do not currently have that imperishable inheritance. You are not sprinkled clean. You are not set apart. If Christ has not drank the righteous cup of wrath from the Father for you, then it waits for you in eternity. God, in his goodness, from the foundations of the earth, planned to send his own son to die on a cross for your and my sin. And all who trust in him He has taken their sin from them and given his righteousness. So friend, if you have not done that, 
this morning, if you, if you feel that call, if you understand, if your eyes are open and you see what I'm talking about, I invite you to turn to him. Repent and believe the gospel. When you say, my case is too desperate. You say, I've done too much stuff. Yeah, we all, we all have. You say, you're too sinful. Well, we were all born dead in sin. See, the gospel is not that Jesus Christ takes good people and makes them a little bit better. The gospel is that Jesus Christ takes people dead in sin and makes them alive. If you have further questions about this, feel free to send me an email. Give me a call. My information should be in the bulletin. But if you're here and you are trusting in Christ, if you are a believer, I have three points of application for you. Uh, The first two are pretty short. The last one's a little longer. First, remember that Christ is your only hope in both life and death. So many Christians can give someone the church answers and then place practically their hope elsewhere. We see that a lot with people that grew up in church. They know the right answers, but their hope is really not in Christ. It's in politics or it's in wealth or it's in um, the fact that they're fairly healthy and adventurous or whatever. Um, And when that is ripped away from them, uh, they just get shattered. So friend, if you're trusting in Christ, remember Christ is your only hope in life and death. Second, know that suffering is a part of the Christian life. It's not going away. So often we glide through life, like I said, me as much as anybody else, and then we get T-boned. Something comes out of nowhere and we say, why would God let this happen? But no, suffering is going to be a part of our life. It is not, can you get punched in the mouth like Iron Man and just keep taking it? But it is after the initial shock, do you turn to God or are you dashed apart? Trust in him. Third, which is going to help us with the first two. The way to reinforce the application of one and two is to do three. You need to preach truth and the gospel to yourself every day, daily, through different means. Think of it this way. Spiritual exercise plus spiritual food is going to equal spiritual strength. But if you've got trash in, you're going to have trash out, as they say. If you want to ensure despair during your next trial, I would invite you to stop reading your Bible, don't worry about doctrine, and listen to surface-level songs. And I promise you, next time you get T-boned, you will despair. A sure way to remind yourself who you are and who you belong to is to stay daily praying. Pray daily. Turn the news off. Read your Bible. Spiritual strength comes from time with God in prayer and time in His Word. Sustain time in his word. Read or listen to good books on sound doctrine. Um, This doesn't have to be some crazy graduate level book. I mean, there are very many lay level books. You say, I don't like to read. Audible has them. They're usually cheaper, I think, on Amazon. And you can listen to those things and start to learn the basics of the faith or reinforce the basics of the faith if you already know them. Sing and listen to songs and hymns that are doctrinally rich. Listen to good podcasts. Um, there are a lot of number of good podcasts and I and others can make recommendations, things that are going to have you thinking about your faith that are going to be spiritual food and spiritual exercise are going to help you when those, those T-bone moments come. <clears throat> well, how do you know if it's sound? Well, one, you can, you know, like I said, you can talk to me, but also broadly think of it this way. If it focuses on God as revealed in his word, it will probably be spiritual meat and potatoes. 
But if it focuses on man, if it focuses on you and it focuses on your goodness and uses little quips and sayings rather than the Bible, then it is probably spiritual bubble gum and it will not sustain you. Not in the long run. Church, preach truth to yourself. Remind yourself who you are in Christ, that you are his. Can you pray with me? Well, Father, we thank you for this day. God, we thank you for your church um, that encourages us. God, we thank you for the technology to meet like this, despite our current climate. God, I pray for each one of these people that are listening, guests, church members. Father, I pray that they would be encouraged by your word, that they would reflect on your word. Um, they would remember what you have done for them in Christ, um, that they would remember that you are good, that you are holy. And Father, if there's someone listening that is not um, in union with your son, God, I pray that you would illuminate to them this text and they would see their need for you and that they would reach out to someone and repent and believe the gospel. And I pray all this in your son's name. Amen.